Welcome to Rough Drafts, how God writes his love in our stories, a podcast that explores the faith journeys of our friends and neighbors in Burns, Tennessee. Everyone has a story to tell. And in this podcast, we'll hear powerful and inspiring stories of how God works in the ordinary lives of people like you and me. Our stories are unfinished and perfectly imperfect. They're just rough drafts, a glimpse of what is to come because God is still at work, writing plot twists, introducing new characters, and bringing good even from the most challenging circumstances. Join us as we see what God is up to in our stories. Here's your host, Matthew Hyatt. So the circle of our show is expanding a little bit today. Most of our guests have been friends from Dixon County, uh, but today you get to listen to a friend from Donaldson among other places. Uh, Freed Hardeman Connections, North Carolina Camps. Son of a preacher, but don't hold that against him. Today's guest is my friend, Caleb Sams. Welcome. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. You're here? You we made, made it. it. Yeah, I was enticed. <laughs> you were enticed uh, by what? I was this lovely little restaurant downtown here that we find too many opportunities to go to. Ginger's. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's, you guys have it good over here on this side of town. It was a little rough when uh, we were walking out and Ricky started to pat you down for the bottles of yum yum sauce you had shoved in your pants. Yeah, yeah. They, they. I think my picture's up in the back, probably <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> There's a warning. Um. So you have you have grown up in and around the world of ministry. Yeah. Your dad is like the Pope of the Carolinas. Yeah. Um. You have done your career in the financial world, but a lot of what you have done has been church facing finances. Mm-hmm. Uh, just give me the thirty thousand foot view of that. Yeah, so to not turn that into a commercial. Um, You're welcome to. My, uh, we don't pay. So <laughs> my, uh, my, so my dad's been in ministry uh, ever since he left school. He's been in the Carolinas the whole time. Um, and because of that, I got a really front-hand view of what life is in ministry as much as you can as a minister's kid. It's, I'm sure it's different. Um, but it made it, it was enough for me not to want to get into ministry. Um, he's and that's not to say anything bad about where he's been or what he's done or anything. He more so the bar that he set was felt unachievable. Um, and but it, it left a little soft spot in my heart towards ministry and love the church and and so when I got into financial planning and opened that practice, there was always a tinge towards I've, I've met and went to school with at Freed and have friends and and just connections with ministers that I know just have questions, need help. And, and so just, it's a, it's a part of what we do and how we work with folks and, and churches and stuff. So, but it was all kind of through the seeing behind the scenes as a kid growing up and you knew how the sausage was made. Yeah. Yeah. You get to see a lot of really, so he's been at the same church for over 35 years. So you get to see a really, a lot of really special, beautiful things about that. But then there's also always stuff falls through the cracks. And so you kind of get to see both sides of that coin. Absolutely. So, you yeah. know, Ministry is wonderful. It is a really cool life. I get to do some of the coolest things in the world uh, and get to help some people in some neat ways. But if my kids came up to me and said, I want to do it, um, I might scream run. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Probably a whole other episode. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we, we can't tell those stories because those people are still alive. So, yeah. you know, yeah. it's the Joel. The people that are employing you potentially are listening to this, right? So I don't know. I don't think they actually <laughs> listen. <laughs> it's the rest of the church that does. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there are any number of stories you could tell. Uh, sure. Over our lunches at Ginger over the years, you've told me a lot, and I have no clue where you're going to go with this, but what's your God story? Yeah. Um, I think I think there's three, as I've listened to other episodes, I would say there's three like really major points. 
Um, you are such a preacher's kid. <laughs> do, do you have a poem? They all say they start with the same letter. Okay. I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, there's I've got illustrations and, and everything. So um, I think the first one is just a major blessing. Um, I think sometimes when we grow up in church and we have faithful families, uh, I think there's a tendency sometimes we look back and go, well, we don't have the really big story or we don't have the really. And I think sometimes we miss out on like the generational faithfulness that is there. Um, my dad ended up at Freed on like a dare uh, to, he was, he was set to go to the University of Tennessee in their engineering department with a full ride. And a guy came home, they'd only been going back to church for a couple of years and while he was in high school. And a guy came home from Freed and bet him and his best friend that he wouldn't last the semester at a Christian school. And so he, being the, you know, the really sound 18 year old that he was, he took him up on the bet and now he's 40 plus years in ministry and met my mom there. And, and so like, I just think. And this is why we're against gambling. Yeah. <laughs> you might end up. You might end up in preaching. Yeah. I don't, so it's neat to see like God's hand in his life, then impacting for like me and my sister to be raised in a family that loves the Lord and, and devotes their life to him and, and. And to be kind of built around that and just, you know, uniquely, a lot of ministers, kids, I think, live a world where relatively often they're bouncing around um, from town to town, church to church. Um, and to be in a place where I was born and raised in the same congregation, um, I've got a lot of like ancillary family members that, you know, I, when I think of aunts and uncles and grandparents, I, I've got my own, sure, but most of the faces that fill those memories are just people from that church that just surrounded our family in love. And so just, uh, I think that's the first piece. God just blessed me. Um, and even in the midst of that, I think there was, you know, everybody kind of goes through points in their life when they're trying to figure it out or whatever. And I remember when I was a kid in middle and high school and stuff, I, I knew all the right answers. Um, I could lead the whatever version of a youth group there is at a small church in North Carolina, our, our seven kids that were all two years apart. Um, I could I could go to church camp and and do the devo and all that kind of stuff. But then, during the year, during the week, uh, you know, run through all the same stuff, and that continued for a couple of years at Freed. Um, and I guess so. The second, my second point in this uh, syllabus, um, I remember the uh, the year the the summer between my sophomore and junior year of college at Freed, just kind of having this moment where. I was really frustrated with what felt like living kind of two lives uh, with, with one foot on either side of the camp. Um, and so I remember praying and trying to, you know, asking God to, to push me off that fence. Um, and I mean, we might talk more about this or whatever, but later on that year, I uh, was diagnosed with cancer, uh, missed a year at school, uh, and all sorts of different treatments and all that kind of stuff. Um, but a really tangible way to see um, and experience the church and God and um, and his faithfulness and my frailty and um, to to kind of be on the front end receiving of his peace and and patience and love and and all that and and that was a obviously for me a really big refining moment. Um, okay, hang on, you are going to have to tell that story. Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you want me to dive in now? We said thirty thousand foot. I mean, we can nosedive the plane. Okay, let's nosedive the plane. Let's look for mountain to crash into. Okay, okay. So, um, summer of my junior year, um, or in between my sophomore and junior year, summer leading up to junior year, of, I started to- Of college? Of college, okay. yeah. So I was 20. Um, started to notice ankle pain in my left ankle. Um, I was never 
like the most athletic person on the planet, but I could do some stuff. And so I noticed I couldn't run or jump without, you know, pain, wasn't, wasn't able to walk without a limp, which was throwing me off. And we were about to go back to school. And so I wanted to figure out what I needed to figure out because that involved intramurals and, and all things. And so I went to a doctor, we took some x-rays. They didn't see anything. This was in August. And they, they said, you know, it's most likely tendonitis. And they gave me the typical treatment of, you know, ice it, elevate it, compress it, um, raise it up. I got those out of order twice. Um, and, and, and the pain subsided after a few weeks of doing that. And then when I went back to school, a couple weeks, months or so later, pain started coming back and I just figured it's tendonitis again. Overdone it. Um, and so I just kept going cause you can't really like live on a college campus and rest really. So even just walking around campus, so I just kept playing sports, kept doing all the things, figured I would get to the end of, you know, the semester and get into the six ish weeks of winter break and then just chill and not do anything. And about a week or two into that, I realized pain was getting worse. It wasn't getting better. And so I remember going to the same sports ortho doctor, um, and I had this like vivid fear in my mind. I was so terrified of, I, I thought I'd push tendonitis to its extent. And I'd, you know, you snap the tendon right. when you've, when you've overused it. And I was so nervous that I was going to have to have this, what was in my mind, massive surgery to, to put a tiny little slit in my ankle and basically connect the, the tendon back together. Yeah. Um, and but that felt like a huge, that felt like it was, yeah, yeah that felt like it was going to be the worst news ever. Um, and in that meeting, they looked, they did the same x-ray and they took the x-ray and basically all they said was there's clearly something wrong here. We don't know what it is. Um, we're going to have our radiologist look over this and she'll call you in the morning. Um, and so y'all just go back home, you know, and, and just wait to hear from us. Um, and so it was dad and me there. Um, during the summer and I got home and this, it was early afternoon. Uh, some, I think it was a Thursday. Uh, and I remember that because we, what happened on Friday. Um, did you have any sense of, of nothing? So it was just no. kind of like, eh, they know something's jacked up. They're not yeah. Sure yeah. I don't even know. And, and he might, dad might've, we haven't really talked about that specific meeting. Cause then the next day kind of just turned us into a tornado. Um, I don't know if like, I didn't catch radiologist. Like I, you know, I didn't, I don't know if they're specific to a thing. So when she said they were going to send it to their radiologist, I don't know if being in ministry, he sits at a lot of hospitals with a lot of people. I don't know if that threw a bunch of flags up for him yeah. that he just kind of strong armed and didn't let, you know, his son see. Um, but I didn't have a clue. Um, but I remember we got home and dad was just like, well, I mean, we'll wait to see what they say. And I'm going to run back to the office and knock some stuff out. Yeah. They're not calling you until the morning. An hour later, the phone rang. I'm sitting on my parents' couch alone, um, and the first words out of the radiologist's mouth were, is there anyone there with you? Um, <laughs> Which is not what you ever want to hear a doctor no, say on the phone. No, and, and I told her, no, there's not. I'm here alone. And she said, oh, well, then what's a good time I could call you back? <laughs> and I said, no, <laughs> like you, whatever you've got to tell me, you know, you could tell me. Um, and so she starts to talk about, you know, what the, the x-ray looks like. And she uses a word called osteosarcoma is what she thinks it is, which is a type of bone cancer. Um, and in that, you know, she tells me that we've already got everything scheduled tomorrow morning. You're going to go down to Charlotte and we've got you an appointment with a bone disease surgeon that specializes in all sorts of different things. We've got MRI scheduled and blood work scheduled and all this kind of stuff. And so we spent the whole day. And when we first got there, um, the the doctor looked at me and he was he 
he expressed a little bit of frustration in what she said. He was like, I wish you hadn't told you it was osteosarcoma. It could be a number of things. We're going to figure it out. Um, and as the day went on, we kept kind of checking off all the boxes of all the other things that it could have been, not this thing, um, that were all like better options than what it was. Uh, he, he said it could have been like the world, the worst bone disease, like, uh, infection he'd ever seen. Yeah. And he said, I mean, it would, for me, it would be the worst one I've ever seen, but somebody's got to hold the, you know, the mantle. Um, <laughs> Do you get a plaque if that's the I case? I think so. Yeah. I get his picture and he puts me up on the wall and it's probably an x-ray scan next to it or something. Yeah. Um, it could have been a lymphoma. He said it'd been rare for it to be in the bone, but with the, the relationship between marrow and blood cells, it's not, un- it's, it's probably uncommon, but not impossible. Um, but we check, we kept checking the boxes off and so ultimately we were left with osteosarcoma. Um, but because it was a Friday, we really didn't get some of those results. Like I've always felt like that weekend is the worst time to go get tests done Yeah, because nobody's calling you on a Saturday morning. Um, so we sat for the weekend and kind of waited to see uh, what was going on. And ultimately Monday, we kind of got the official diagnosis. We scheduled some, all sorts of stuff probably at that point. Uh, had to get a biopsy, which we determined it was stage four. Um, we did a full body bone scan. And it was also present in both of my lungs, which is where osteosarcoma goes. It usually shows up around a joint in the bones and then metastasizes to the lungs if it's not caught early enough. We put a port in, um, and then I pretty much immediately started a schedule of three different chemotherapies that were all inpatient. Um, So I was in the hospital for about three weeks straight-ish. I'd do one for four or five days, take a day or two, come back, do another one, and then vice versa. So I was in the hospital for about three-ish weeks and then out for about two weeks and then back on. Um, It ultimately led to an amputation in April, uh, which we knew going in pretty quickly that that was going to be the case. Um, They thought there was a chance they could have saved the leg uh, before they actually got in and did the biopsy and saw how much damage the tumor had already done. Uh, But we had already decided not to do that anyway. Um, It's a really cool, like there was a couple moments where people that don't have to infuse like faith into their like their services did for us throughout that year. One of them was this surgeon. Um, I remember in that meeting on Friday when he was kind of going through the options of we could do what's called this bone fusion and save the leg or we could amputate. Um, he he expressed how, you know, as a surgeon, he really enjoys what he does. Um, and he, he likes surgery and it's challenging. And he and so if he had to pick like what surgeon to what surgery to put on his list of what he had to do today, He'd pick the fusion every time because it's way more tactful and challenging and it'd be enjoyable. And then he reached around. He was kind of sitting on the back of his desk and we were sitting in the chairs in his office and he kind of reached around behind him and grabbed a little picture frame and flipped it over to show my dad. And it's his four or five year old son. And he says, but if it was him, I'd amputate every time just because the lifestyle he'll be able to live, you know, he'd never run or jump again if we fused this. Um, He'd walk with a limp. He'd probably develop knee and hip problems and all that kind of stuff. And that really helped dad kind of in infu- like he saw the relational side of, uh, that the doctor allowing himself to be a little human in that moment. We decided to wait to do the amputation until April to give the chemo about three months to, to at least have some glimpse of an idea of what is the treatment that you're taking? How is the tumor in your ankle responding? And maybe that'll give us an idea of how the tumors in your lungs are responding. That's a neat. Um, that's a neat thought. Like this yeah. is a marker for that, right? Yeah. So they, we had the option. They're like, "You're the healthiest you're gonna be over the next year, right now." Like we're gonna throw chemo at you, and every every round is gonna make you weaker and weaker. So we could amputate right now, and you'd probably be able to do your you know physical therapy and get up and walking a little bit easier, have a little bit more energy, so that your body can get used to that transition before you get weaker. 
Um, and it was really after the amputation in April, it was probably not until August that I started to really be able to walk with some sort of, um, confidence. Yeah. And it was mainly cause one of my roommates was getting married and I was in the wedding. It's great. I love these pictures. You got this bald headed, really pale kid in this guy's wedding. Um, but I, I was really convinced. I was like, I am not walking down the aisle in this guy's wedding with canes. Yeah. And I remember getting so mad at myself one day because up until I got diagnosed, I was walking on a broken leg. Yeah. And, and dealing with a lot of pain and just kind of gritting through it and was, I guess, tougher or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then after the surgery, I was just kind of like, and so I remember like, oh, six months ago, you'd just be jumping around right now. So I remember I was literally sitting on the couch. I took both of my canes onto the back deck of my parents' house and just hurled them as far as I could into the backyard. And I was like, all right, well, you're going to walk now. Um, and so did that. Burning the ships, man. Yeah. yeah. And, and so we did chemo, uh, all, all that year, all the way up till the end of October. Um, and then we had a, a bilateral lung surgery and cancer free, uh, so far since then, it'll be 10 years in October next month. Um, and congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. That's the big one they say. So, um, it's, I try not to get like overly dramatic or whatever. Um, I think I knew you three or four years before you ever told me any of it. Yeah. You made a joke about like a Wi-Fi password or something. I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I, you, when you get diagnosed with a rare disease, like you, you meet everybody's neighbors, nephews, schoolmate that heard about it too. Yeah. Um, I haven't met anybody yet that mm. has also survived. Um, and, and it's a, it's typically, I was fairly old for when I got it. It's really? typically a pediatric cancer. Huh. So it's been, you know, you meet a lot of 12, 13, 14 year olds. Um, and so I don't know any way to explain like why that didn't take place for me. And there's always outliers. There's always, you know, there's the guy that was cleared for 12 years and then went back in for a routine checkup and lit up the light like a Christmas tree or whatever. You know, yeah. who knows what is in store for my future, but. But who knows? None of us know that. Right. Yeah. And, and so it's just, it was amazing to see God at work in the midst of that. Um, I remember when that, that weekend between the, all the tests and the official diagnosis, we kind of let our church family know and some close friends know, um, what was going on. And I remember when I, I, like I went up and kind of told the, our church family what was happening and what was going on and what it most likely was and what we were just kind of waiting to hear. Right afterwards, a one of our elders got up behind me, and in, in an effort to be encouraging, he just said, "You know, this is the devil. Don't you know? Don't lose faith. Don't lose sight, and all that kind of stuff. The devil's trying to stop you and slow you down, and all that kind of stuff." And I think there's probably layers to that that's <clears throat> potentially true. I do know that for the like six months prior to my diagnosis, I was praying for God to send something that threw me off of a fence, so where I was living a life in two camps, and. The prayer that I was asking for was very specific. I remember saying multiple times over and over again, God, I don't care what side of the fence I land on. I just don't want to be on the fence anymore. And it was probably about six months into my diagnosis that as dad and I were just talking about that, we spent a lot of time in hospitals together. Uh, as he was talking, like he was praying that in his life, he had never really felt like his faith had been tested. He, he'd, he'd read the stories throughout scripture of all these guys with opportunities to show how much they trusted God, to show how much they believed in God throughout the midst of their major trials and l pretty much identical to the same timeline that I'm sitting here praying, God, send something to just knock me over one way or the other. Dad was actively praying almost to the day when he started praying, 
God, I just, I, I want you to test me. Um, and so I think what that guy was saying was good. Crossing that off things I'm ever praying. How, and I, I'll tell you, man, I, I like, so the third layer, the third, if we ever get to the third point of where life is now, life is so good. Um, married to a, a, just an amazing girl named Courtney, who is better than anything I ever could be. We just had our first, she just turned one, uh, last month, our first little girl, um, named Lily. And just to see all the, like the, the ways in which I didn't even know Courtney before I got sick. And I took a random class when I got back to freed, um, that had nothing to do with my major. Um, I just happened to know the guy over the department and he threw me in a random 400 level class and, and wrote off all of the prerequisites required because I was just interested in the topic. What class was that? Um, it was, uh, well, don't ask me that on the, it was a marketing class. Um, oh, funny. something consumer behavior. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, it was a random 400 level marketing class that the only other people in there were all senior level marketing majors that were also all probably halfway through a master's degree in business mm-hmm. and, right. and all this kind of stuff. And I, I had none of that going in. I didn't understand the language, the lingo. I never met Courtney, and I remember I walked into that class, and I knew one guy in the room, and I sat down next to him. On the other side of him was Courtney's roommate, and then on the other side of her was Courtney. Yeah. A week into the class, my my guy dropped the class, and so now I've just got this random empty seat, and I'm like, well, I'll scoot over, and and yeah, I, you will. And I remember, um, it's funny, like if you'd have known me in college, I I, I went to uh, one of our social clubs or whatever softball games and i was sitting there with a really good friend of mine who's was on staff and is still on staff um and she'd kind of become like a she wasn't getting paid for this but i basically used her as a counselor while i was at freed yeah um and i remember sitting next to her at the game and i told her i'm in trouble and she said why and this was two weeks into the year i I think i've i've said hello to courtney at this point um and i guess there's more backstory courtney had come down and sat next to me at the on the bleachers because her boyfriend at the time was playing our team um and she walked down and her team she played on like her clubs the highest level team or whatever they were playing next but none of her teammates had gotten down there yet to like warm up yeah so she was early gonna go watch her boyfriend play um and then a couple minutes later a couple teammates showed up and she walked off and then i turn around and look at summer and i go summer i'm in trouble and she goes why and i said well, i'm in love with that girl like i said i'm in love with that girl and that's her boyfriend over there. <laughs> and uh, so you had him killed. And yeah, and and, and if you'd have known, like, it, it's, it's not only the context of like just the other people sitting around me probably were like, okay, sure, Caleb. But this was the woman that over the last three or four years I'd gone to with every all of the stupid stuff I was doing. All of the there's no world in which she was like, yeah, sure, Caleb. Like, yeah. okay. Um, and I remember one of my best friend's little sisters happened to be sitting next to me when I said that to Summer. And after Courtney and I got married. She reached out and messaged me and she said, I remember that night that you said that you loved her. Um, and I don't know what it was. I, it, I mean, other than she was just magical. Um, but like from the moment I saw her, I was just like this girl and there was something different and special about her. Um, and so we just got this really fun and awesome life. And th- I thought of that because a couple months ago I was helping teach a class with one of our elders um, around like generosity and some other stuff. And it was a couple um, at our church that he and his wife had lost their son when he was maybe 13 or 14. Um, And he said something to the effect of while he was teaching that class, um, 
to get your faith to a, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this and, and paraphrase a little bit, but basically getting your faith to a point where you can say the prayer to God to go, God, whatever is, whatever is in my life that you've got to take away to bring me closer to you, like I'm laying that at your feet. Um, and in, in losing his son was a prayer that he learned to pray. And I remember that night, just a couple months ago, looking at him and going, I think I could have said that prayer nine months ago, <laughs> but I don't know if, I don't know if I'm, I'm saying that prayer right now. Yeah. Aggressively and definitely not honestly. My fingers are crossed if I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Yeah. That's the thing about faith. Um. I think most of us, I don't even want to say most of the time, I want to say all the time with incredibly narrow exceptions, don't actually live a life that requires faith. Sure. We don't do anything that, you know, we pay the bills. Yeah. We go to the doctor, we floss. Sure. We, and so we do all the things and, and that's good, but the moments where our faith means more than I got up and went to church on Sunday for a whole lot of us are exceedingly rare. Um, and on one hand, I kind of really like it like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it it would, it had to have been safer feeling for Peter to, to be riding on the boat than walking on the water. Right. But what do we miss if we never get out of the boat? Man, that was so corny. But like, <laughs> you know, yeah. what do we miss yeah. because we're afraid? And, you know, my line earlier about, you know, Lord, I'm never praying that you help knock me off the fence. Yeah. We say things like that, and they're half joking, but they're not really a joke. Right. Um, don't pray for patience. God will put someone real annoying in your life, yeah. and you'll regret it. Yeah. Even that line just kind of betrays the fact that we don't actually trust that God knows what he's doing. Yeah. And we're afraid that if we rub the, the, the magic bottle, the genie will come out and not give us what we wished. Yeah. And I think the... I I never experienced, and I may ne I may not have experienced really to this tangible level since then, the level of spiritual warfare um, that I experienced that year. I started out in the midst of that six month kind of period of prayer. It also was coined. I, I don't know why, other than I think I was finally getting to a place spiritually where like I was letting God lead instead of me just trying to make my own life how I wanted it to look. I, I found myself. I'd go to the library. Um, which was, I didn't even know where the library was. <laughs> Fred Hardeman did have one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, and I would take my, I would take my Bible and uh, I probably wasn't the most studious, uh, uh, person on campus. I definitely wasn't. Uh, but I'd, I'd read entire books of the Bible in one sitting. Uh, I, I was, I, I got this level of hunger, I think. Yeah. Um, and I remember when I first got diagnosed, there was this immediate kind of like, all right, this is what we've been waiting for to a certain degree. Yeah. Like I, I, I've been, I've been praying. So now's the time to go. And I had this kind of, I couldn't, I'd wake up each morning and read through Job and I'd read Philippians and I'd, I'd get to this point of, you know, I think sometimes we, we misinterpret Paul's words when we're like, well, Paul didn't really know what he wanted. And I was like, yeah, he did. He, yeah. he tells you which one would be better. He's just willing to stay. Um, Hard pressed between the two. Yeah. To be with you or to be with Jesus. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I feel like I started there, but then I think what, uh, what, Satan's like allowed lies to sip seep into my like heart where I started I'd come back to freed or I'd go to a church or I'd, I'd just go to church whatever and so many people um we kind of coined this little 
hashtag or whatever, because those were a big deal back then, of uh, God is bigger than cancer. Um, the idea was just, you know, whatever does or doesn't happen, um, God's great and nothing, no outcome changes that. And a lot of people, in an effort to encourage me, I think, uh, there were so many people that I, I, you know, I could never do what you're doing or I wouldn't have that kind of response or that's uh, such great faith. And all of that was great encouragement. But I think what Satan allowed to happen was it didn't take long for my fully developed 20-year-old brain mm. um, to walk into a room and go like, the best Christian in here. <laughs> like, <laughs> all these people are looking up to me and they're, they think I've got it all figured out. I've got all the right answers. They want me to preach. They want me to talk about it. I'm limping up on stage. I'm, And I quickly went from what was this, this pool of I can't move and breathe without looking to scripture, praying to this almost like, clearly I got that figured out. And so there was this deficit that took me years um, to wander through, even even until the last few years, probably. Um, there's this there's been this chasm of like trying to get back into the rhythm of like, no, that's not true. Like those are lies. Like you're still there's more to this. You're not you don't have it figured out. You're not the the best guy in the room and all that kind of stuff. And and I just I it was such a it was such a fast swing mm-hmm. of like, man, I can really feel God here to Satan going like, yeah, you can. Yeah, and just special. how how quick yeah. it was to to twist it over. Um, Isn't it funny? Because if you if you just pictured how you would warn somebody for their spiritual health during a battle with cancer at age twenty, you know you would assume that the warning is watch out. This is going to cause you to question God. Yeah, like that's the the standard version of the story that we right. imagine. But you're saying in your experience, the real the real version was watch out because you think you're the hero of the story. Yeah. I think I mean that's how we read scripture, oh, right? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm put, I'll put myself in first person every time I'm reading. You know, I'm David and Goliath. I am the giant slayer. Yeah, you know, right. dare to be a Daniel. When really I'm probably the guy shivering in his boots on the sideline. Like I had a great sermon about that one time. Yeah. I said, "Don't pray that you be a David. Pray to thank God that He sent you a David." Yeah, uh, and there's a huge difference yeah. in reading that way. And we kind of talked about that today. We talked about this before, but at lunch too. Just the there's a really really big difference in you being the person going through it and loving the person going through it. You know, I, I know my parents wrestled with why is this happening? Give it, take it from him and give it to me. What do I need? Like, you know, not within a sense that they like, you know, I'm sure they battled and struggled and wrestled with their faith, but they've, they've remained their faith, you know, but I I definitely think it's, it's really different. There's something that kind of happened. Like you just, when you're the, for me, I guess I'll speak for me. I've talked to other people in the same shoes, and I think they've agreed. But when you're the one that's got the news, the diagnosis, all that kind of stuff, eventually, for the most part, there's a there's a certain sect of responses to that that just kind of quickly gets to the all right. Well, what are you what are you gonna do? You tell me to show up for treatment or not, or you know, I'll, maybe I'll find my own round. But at the end of the day, like this is what I've got, and we'll rock through it. And it's it's the people that loved me that I could sense more, you know being more viciously attacked by the actual truth of your son, your brother, your friend has cancer and it's not good. Uh, this is in such a small, small way compared to this. Leslie's had two or three knee surgeries over the years. She had kids via C-section, all that stuff. And when Katie was born a couple of years later, they decided she needed to have uh, tonsils and adenoids out. <clears throat> and so, you know, we go to 
Vandy Hospital and they, you know, wheel your kid back for surgery and she looks so tiny in yeah. that bed. And Leslie looked at me in the waiting room and goes, it really isn't fun to be on the waiting room side. It's a lot better to be the person they work on, isn't it? And yeah. now you know how the rest of us have felt. Oh, man. She I, said, I've never experienced this side. Yeah. I've had, I don't know how at all. I mean, I've had multiple relatively large surgeries. I've had infections from, you know, my immune system that we, I got like ransomed in Memphis for a few weeks because my, I got a, such a bad blood infection that we, we got kind of caught in an emergency room waiting room for a couple of hours before I could actually get in and see a doctor. And they, we, we held, we held this information back from my mom for a number of years. Um, <laughs> the doctor told me that had I not gotten in a couple hours, like the infection was so bad. And I was, I was in Memphis for about three weeks before I could come home. And so we had multiple different things that happened. Lungs collapsed during different parts. So all these different needles and prods and all kind of stuff. And a couple months ago, Lily goes in to get tubes in her ears. Yeah. It takes, I think it took six minutes, maybe. Right. Um, and it's not even like we knew that we, I've known the the doctor, the surgeon that did the procedure for years. He's great. He's well known. He's probably done tubes for 30 other kids at church. You know, like just. Yeah. And like. You know, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. He cares. Yeah. It's, and it's such a simple, it's basically piercing the inside of her ears instead yeah. of the outside of her ears. Right. And, but like those little six minutes, you're just like. Can, all right. Taking so long. What's next? Yeah. When's he going to come back? <laughs> so, yeah, it's so, I, yeah, I think it's, I've always heard that little joke of like the difference with major and minor surgery is whether or not it's happened to you. And I don't know if I believe it. I yeah. think there's a layer of like, yeah, there's a little more nausea and, and information. But I think when you love someone else that's going through surgery, I think that might even be a, a, a if there's a level above major surgery. Yeah. <laughs> like, but we talked about this at lunch in context of uh, Randy's episode and what it was like for him to walk through with Braxton. And not to minimize Braxton's role at all, but um, watching Randy through that was yeah. was clutch. And what was cool when you, you texted me about uh, about listening to Randy's episode, you, you've never met the guy. No. So like, you know, I know him and I like him, you yeah. know, but you've never met the guy and you could hear it and you could feel it from yeah. him, you know. Yeah. And it, yeah, I, I, one of our, our minister at Donaldson asks me almost every time I see him, like, what have I learned about God now that we've had Lily? And it just amplifies everything. Like, I think yeah. I think a year ago I'd have listened to that and I'd have felt empathy maybe to a yeah. certain degree. Like, man, that's terrible. Having kids ruins you. Yeah. yeah. Everything is so much sadder now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it was like you, you saw a story about a child get abused on the news. You're like, oh, man, that sucks. Yeah. But now you see that same story on the news. I'm like, do I need to go buy guns and like get a bat and go find this guy too? Yeah, like, seriously. is there is that like another a, option? I'm lynch him, you know? <laughs> like, uh, it's yeah. coming. Yeah, it's it's funny. And so much of what we and I have just talked about has been perspective stuff. Yeah, I want to go back to one one more area, unless you've got another story or two you want to share. But um, at the beginning of the show, um, you said, you know, that, that your story, you grew up in church, dad's faithful, family's faithful. Um, and you said, you know, it's easy to kind of think that your story isn't an exciting story, but generational faithfulness is a big deal. Yeah. And one of the reasons sometimes people turn me down for sitting in the chair and doing this, yeah, they'll say, well, my story's not interesting. I, I you know, I was never in a cult. I never was a crackhead, and you yeah, know, like so, I don't, I don't have a good story. But generational faithfulness is a huge story. Yeah. Talk to me about that for a minute. Yeah. I I'm always hesitant when we when we do youth rallies and we bring out the story of there's this guy that was 
slinging drugs and and living this really worldly life and now Jesus has found him I think it's a beautiful story of grace and mercy and yeah. I love the testimony that that brings but when you wheel that out in front of a bunch of 16 and 17 year olds 90% of what they hear is oh cool so we can do what we want and we're solid we'll find God later um, and it's funny because their reaction is, oh, he did cool stuff. Yeah. And like what he's trying to say is that stuff was That was awful. Cool. It was you terrible. Know? Don't do that. Yeah. And 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 I, I we I heard the same thing. We're we're going through a thing right now where we're kinda in a search. And one of the ways we're starting our meetings with uh the team is everybody kinda each person one week kinda has a day to tell their story. And we've had a little bit of that pushback too of, oh, there's really nothing here. Um and I think there's kind of two sides to that coin. A, just the fact that you're here. Like, the, you know, there's so many places you could be that, you know, where God, to be able to walk through, to see your family's story of people that have loved Jesus and loved his church and and been in, made that an influential part of their lives and passed that love and that faith down to their children and to their children's children and all that kind of stuff. That's a, that is a tapestry that is only woven by the hands of the spirit. And I think that, you know, we, we need to, we need to get back to lifting that up and letting our, our next generation recognize like that, that's the goal. Like that's what we're looking like. That's what we want to see and what we want to hear. And like life, God has such a life for you. That's so full and so big and so good. If we can just stick into that. And then I think the other side of that thing too, is we use really specific language. I think sometimes when we talk about like the pain stories, the hard stories, the the mistake stories or whatever. And what I always try to tell people when I'm asked to speak about this or whatever, which I think I'm finally starting to age out. I've, yeah. uh, I've, I'm far enough removed that there have been unfortunately enough other people that have suffered that they're now typecast as the suffering people. Um, but yeah, it expired at 10 years. Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm grateful for it. But what I always try to tell people is like, whether you're six years old or you're 90 years old, however you would answer the question, what is the worst thing that's ever happened to you? It doesn't matter if it's massive loss, career turmoil, relationship demise, death, illness, or if it's my best friend moved away or, you know, somebody said something mean to me and I thought we were friends and now we're not friends or I dropped my ice cream cone on like, the reality of how our brains fire, like however you answer the question of what is the worst thing that's happened to you, is it, it's going to elicit the same emotions as whatever is the worst thing that happened to me does. You know, it's funny because we want to be pain gatekeepers yeah. and say, well, this grief is higher than this grief. Yeah. You know, and I mean, there there is a degree to which we ought to have some perspective to sure. say like, hey, losing your child is not the same as you dropped your ice cream. Yeah. Because sometimes you meet people who need that. We say some boneheaded stuff sometimes right. trying to be nice, right? Uh, yeah. But what you said is exactly true. Whatever the worst loss you felt is like the worst loss somebody else felt. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a leveling field there and and a space where you can if you're if you're looking for it in those moments you you'll see God step in, you know, and and that's where we can do the old adage of the footprints in the sand, right? The uh, the beautiful little, you know, but there's so much truth in like I, it's. I hate how good and true that little story yeah, is. It's you, been ruined by being put on refrigerator magnets. I, I heard a guy a couple of weeks ago preach a really beautiful sermon of, uh, he used a an image, I can't remember the name of the, it's some famous 
painter that painted this really famous picture of Mary Magdalene sitting outside of the tomb. And the whole, all of the shades of the painting are dark, but there's just a little bit of light cast on her face. And her face is kind of turned away from her body towards the tomb. Yeah. And it, and the, where he took the sermon was, it was only when Mary stepped into her most painful, darkest, deepest part of life. Like that's where she found Jesus. And I think like, not that we want people to have to run through pain and suffering and temptation and mistakes and all that kind of stuff, but there is something about as we walk through life and see those moments expire, like transpire, if we're if we've if we've got eyes to see, right? Like there's so many places. I, like I'm hearing like, look for the the people doing good, right? Like Mr. Rogers, God's gonna show up. Yeah. Um, he's he's not. He loves us. He loves us. And he's the last thing he's going to do at our greatest moment of need is be anywhere else. Right. So, mm. Okay, that was good. Can I just play this Sunday? Instead of preaching. <laughs> uh, I don't have a sermon ready yet, so <laughs> that'd be all right. They just You would to have to pay. I think there's like, we're gonna, uh, I'll send you the speaker's fee. Okay, uh, you get the honorarium. <laughs> do you get paid per person who listens to, or is it just like... A, ooh, ooh, we could. Yeah, can we set up a listener... How many listens do I need for you to buy gingers next time? Uh, Twelve, I think. Exactly. Nice. So tell your wife to get downloaded. You yeah. know. Yeah. Do you check IP addresses? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They all came from the same one. It's all where you live. So. Oh man. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Is there is there anything else you'd like to share today? No, man. I uh, I'm just grateful grateful for you for the friendship. It's been you know I think we randomly met each other at. Some top golf outing. Years uh, yeah, ago. you took me to top golf. Yeah, and uh, it's just been—I've appreciated your heart and grateful for you being over here and the work that you're doing. Well, do you want to give like a sales pitch real quick before you're done? No, gosh, no. Well, how do people find you if they wanted to find you? So on Twitter, no, I don't know. Uh, it's not called Twitter anymore. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, I don't even know how to say that. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I don't know. Ask Matthew. Oh. Like. I don't, I'm not, my wife always tells me that I'm like the worst salesman on the planet. Cause like I'm, uh, she's, you probably try to talk people out of working with you. And I'm like, I just wanted to make the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, Caleb has helped me a lot and I know he's helped a lot of other folks. So if you want to get in touch with him, I will gladly send you his direction. So, well, friends, thanks. Um, uh, thanks so much for listening today. And I hope, um, maybe this week you'll, uh, be inspired to pray a dangerous prayer and see where it goes. Uh, And until we meet again, I know that God is going to write some amazing things in your story, no matter what it looks like. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Rough Drafts. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, help us spread the word by leaving a rating and review. Until next time, let's keep looking for how God writes his love into our stories.